He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Now this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this. That someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, but the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. So that whatever you ask the father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Lord, we ask that as we open up and examine and seek to understand once more, Lord, your teaching here in this passage. Lord, I pray that the Spirit of God will bring an igniting power, uh, that it would wing its way into our hearts to bring about the inner transformation of life, so that we will live lives that bring you pleasure and close intimacy and fellowship with you. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to take up Um, What I see is the final thread that we're going to examine in this passage. And in many ways, I think this is a a theme that undergirds and supports all the other themes that we've been looking at. We've been considering Christ's teaching to abide in him and what that means to remain in Christ as a disciple and to then bear fruit for him. And the call to love one another and then also what it means to be friends of God. But this morning, I want to focus in on... um, The teaching that he gives here on prayer, he mentions prayer twice in this passage, and you can very quickly understand how prayer supports and undergirds everything else that we've been thinking about. But it's there in verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. And then also towards the end in verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask in the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Now, I know and feel like I could draw much evidence to mind to be able to state that prayer elicits very different reactions among us, and particularly polarized reactions. I know that there are some among us, and I've met many believers for whom prayer is a source of incredible, deep joy and solace And that you have found in prayer the deepest intimacy that sustains and empowers um, your life of closeness and relationship to Jesus and your walk with him. And I know that there are believers here for whom they would say, that is absolutely the description of my life and my experience of walking with Christ. I also know that for perhaps most of us, the reality is that as soon as we say we're going to speak about prayer, there may be something of a sinking feeling because... Uh, you feel frustrated. You feel that you have uh, fallen short 
repeatedly in terms of just self-discipline and, and the desire, the aspiration, the longing is there to want to pray and to be a person who fellowships closely with the Lord. But the reality is not always real, that maybe your prayer life is sporadic to non-existent and it feels more like a barren wasteland rather than a rich source of life and sustenance in your day-to-day um, closeness with Jesus. And uh, I think that's evidenced in lots of ways. It's evidenced from the conversations that we have as pastors with individuals who struggle to feel closeness to Jesus. It's evidenced from the fact that, you know, you look at almost any church in the country and contrast the Sunday services with the midweek prayer meetings and you'll see a massive whittling away um, that takes place between those two meetings. And I don't think that's necessarily because people don't want to pray. It's because they feel a lack of knowledge of how or um, a sense of lacking confidence. There are all kinds of things that are going on there, I think. And I will say um, straight up that for me personally, I think I've experienced all of the above. You know, there have been times in my life when I think I feel like my prayer life is flying and that there's a consistency and a joy in that. And then there are times when I feel like I'm barely hanging on. And um, that may surprise you, but it's the reality um, that, that you know, I don't think I, I know anyone who doesn't go through seasons and the ups and downs of prayer in that way, and that's certainly true of me. And so right at the outset, as we begin to open this up, I want to offer you an encouragement as well as a challenge. And I want to begin with the challenge because I want you to pay attention and to be alert this morning. And the challenge is this, simply that prayer is, without question, absolutely vital and essential to the life and joy and sustenance of a Christian walk. I want you to remember that as Jesus is anticipating the reality of his departure, the fact that he will no longer be physically with his disciples, close with them as he has been for the three years up till this point, his intense focus is to prepare them for life without his physical presence. The Holy Spirit will be with them and in them. And he says that will be better. But he nevertheless wants to leave them with a deposit of understanding and teaching and instruction that will equip them to go and live for him. And therefore, the fact that he here draws them back twice to this focus upon prayer shows you how important it is in Christ's mind as he prepares them for, as it were, a kind of a move from just being um, novices to now gaining some kind of mastery in terms of their teaching and their conduct as disciples of Jesus. And it seems to me that the, the intentionality that Christ has had in these men has been, is very much like the experience you have as a parent, that there are certain uh, skills and certain knowledge that you want to impart to your child before they leave the home. Uh, there are many things that you teach them. Some of those things are optional and non-essential. It doesn't really matter in the grand scheme of things for the child's survival whether they learn to play an instrument or not. I think it's preferable, but it doesn't, it's not essential. It's optional. It's optional whether they learn to roast a chicken well or, or whatever food it is, because they can always just prepare mac and cheese endlessly, can't they, And when they leave the home. It's optional whether they learn to ride a bike. There are other ways of getting around. There are all kinds of things that you do not have to teach your child. But then, of course, there are things that you must teach your child for their very flourishing and survival even in life. And those things include the ability to communicate or the ability to um, 
to take care of their finances and their budgets or to obey authority or to work hard or to have good manners that enable you to navigate life. These things, in my mind, are absolute essentials for a child's flourishing and survival in this world. And if you fail to do them, in a sense, you failed in the parenting task. And therefore, I say that because when, I, when you think about Jesus' responsibility and desire to prepare these men for their commissioning into the world, the same commissioning that you and I carry if you're a follower of Jesus, there are essential skills. And at the top of the list is prayer. A Christian cannot survive without prayer. Your life cannot flourish. You cannot bear fruit. You cannot remain in Christ. You can't love the body. You can't be a friend of Jesus unless you pray. Unless prayer characterizes your day-to-day walk with him. There's the challenge. Here's the encouragement. You'll always, it may not sound like an encouragement at first, but bear with me. You'll always be a disciple and never a master when it comes to prayer. You'll always be a learner. And I think that's an encouragement because it, it helps us frame our expectations around our experience of prayer in our day-to-day walk. Prayer is not for those who believe that they have become experts. In many ways, that undermines the act of prayer itself, to think that you have gained some kind of expertise or mastery in prayer. Then I don't think you're praying. Because prayer inherently and by definition is casting yourself in absolute dependence upon God and voicing your need to him and your weakness to him. And I think that encourages me at least because it reminds me that my inadequacy is a good thing rather than a bad thing when it comes to developing a prayer life. My sense of weakness, my sense of failure, my sense of um, incompetence is not a demerit, is not a problem Because it allows you to approach God and approach Christ on the basis of need and of trust. And this is why I remind you what he says in verse 5. He says, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And I would include within that bracket of nothing your prayer life. Apart from Christ, you cannot pray. You cannot begin to pray. You cannot pray well. And for me, that is a profound encouragement because it means that I can recognize that even if I feel that I have never mastered this area, then that's probably a good thing. Now, friends, I simply want to ask them, what is it that Christ wants you to know about prayer? What we're going to do is we're going to zoom in on verse 7 alone, and I want to take it apart phrase by phrase. There are four expressions in there. He says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. First of all then, he says, if you abide in me. Here's the first condition for prayer. If you abide in me. Now, what does he mean here? I would argue that there are two great enemies in the human soul to prayer and to praying adequately and praying well. On the one hand, there is the reality of pride. Pride is the fundamental reason why 
people refuse to pray and don't pray at all because pride is our expression of of independence and self-sufficiency rather than an active acknowledgement of our need of God. And so if you find that your life is barren of prayer, the very, there's a very strong likelihood that at the root of your heart there is a pride issue that prevents you from approaching God uh, in, in daily des- desperation. I'd also add this, though, that there are people who, who nurture pride and prayer simultaneously, and seek to approach God on the, on the basis of pride. And this is something that Christ himself puts his finger on in numerous places, but I think particularly when he's speaking about the reality of religious pride. And he lampoons it. It's there in Luke 18 when he describes the Pharisee going into the temple and saying, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. And he says his prayer cannot be heard, essentially. He ridicules it when in Matthew chapter 6 in that great passage on prayer when he says to his disciples that when you pray you must not be like the hypocrites. They love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. It's possible to nurture a demeanor of piety and a prayerfulness that is not so much a real expression of dependence on God, but rather a conscious desire to manipulate the minds of those around you so that they think of you as a godly and religious person. And it's the ancient equivalent of what today we describe as virtue signaling. Of course, no one's interested in displaying their religious credentials these days, but we display religious credentials in other ways by showing our, our kind of um, social concern or our concern for the environment. And uh, it's as ridiculous, what Christ is describing there was as ridiculous as someone, you know, using their Instagram feed to campaign on climate issues. Meanwhile, they're using the latest phone because the camera is marginally better than the one they got rid of from last year, wearing fast fashion made of polyester, which is killing the dolphins, and uh, eating avocados, which have cost a great deal of carbon to get to your plate. And so the hypocrisy isn't seen. We can kind of wear our virtue on the surface, meanwhile undermining all the time the reality and authenticity of the things that we apparently are campaigning for. And the ancients and the moderns are all exactly alike. We're all just hypocrites. So prone to performance. And pride, therefore, is the great enemy of genuine, genuine, authentic encounter with God in prayer. But its opposite is just as important. And it's shame. Just as pride will keep you from God, I, I would venture a guess that many of you struggle to approach God in prayer, struggle even to be with God's people because of shame. And the reality and the awareness you have of a contradiction between your profession and the life that you're living and the way that shame then becomes a smothering emotional power within your soul. I know this is true because I know the power of shame in our interpersonal relationships. Shame will keep you from others, won't it? It separates you from intimacy with others because when you feel ashamed of yourself, what do you do? You hide. It's the first thing that Adam and Eve did when they went against God's word in the garden. They began to hide. They covered themselves. They hid literally in the bush, and they also wanted to hide their nakedness. I know as a pastor that when people 
disappear from the life of the church. In most cases, not in all, but in most cases, it's because of shame. Because you become aware of a contradiction between your presence with the people of God on a Sunday and the life that you're living, and that becomes an untenable, inconscionable contradiction. And so the easier thing is simply to withdraw rather than to bring a confession to God and deal with the sin. Now, there's no doubt in my mind then that for many, the, the one or other of these issues will prevent you from praying. The problem is, it seems to me that we're caught in a bit of a paradox here because if you feel no shame, then probably you have a proud heart and therefore on that basis you can't come to God in, in authentic prayer. But if you feel shame, the shame will also keep you from the Lord. So what do you do? Are you meant to, what are we meant to feel? And this is why I think the, what Christ says here is this, this statement. He says, if you abide in me, and it's reiterated in a slightly different language in verse 16 when he speaks about prayer. And he says, whatever you ask the Father in my name. What does he mean by these expressions, abide in me or ask in my name, as a fundamental condition of approaching the Father in prayer? And I'll, I'll say, state up front, this is not to do with using a formula of words. Since if you grew up in a Christian home, since you were tiny, you were taught to pray and end your prayers with the phrase, in Jesus' name, amen. And it therefore becomes a kind of way of, of sealing and ending the prayer. You don't necessarily understand what it means. I don't think it's wrong to do that, but I don't think that saying the words makes it a real thing. Rather, what it means to abide in him, if you abide in me, or if you ask in my name, it has this, what it means is to approach the Father on the basis of the gospel. Prayer is to be Trinitarian. We pray to the Father, through the Son, and by the Holy Spirit. Remember that the next time you get on your knees to talk to the Lord. You pray to the Father, through the Son, and by the power and enabling of the Holy Spirit. And this is what Jesus means. When you come to God and you abide in him or you pray in his name, you're able to approach the Father pleading the blood of Jesus, making you acceptable to him so that he will hear your prayer. It means that you can come to him with humble confidence. Humble in that it's not proud. Confident in that it's not ashamed. The humility comes from the reality that you come not on your own worthiness. You know you're not worthy. You know that you have committed wrong. You know that your heart is a conflicted battleground of desires, many of which don't bring pleasure to the Father, and yet you can come to him humbly because you come through Jesus, and you come with confidence to God, as the book of Hebrews tells us to do, to approach the throne of grace with confidence because what we have a high priest who's able to sympathize with our weakness, who is without sin. This is why the believer doesn't need to approach through some side door. There are some traditions of prayer that teach you to pray through another mediator, be it through Mary or through a saint. 
The Bible never tells you to do that. It says, no, you go directly to the Father, and the only mediator is the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who has made you acceptable to the Father. So that when you come into the presence of the Lord, it's as though Jesus himself is on his knees before the throne. That's how the Father looks at you. That's what it means to abide in him. That's what it means to pray in his name. And to understand and embody that will transform your prayer life. I will say as well, I think it's helpful, just as a practical pointer here. I believe it's helpful to articulate this even as you come to God in prayer. To pray, Father, I'm approaching you on the basis of the gift of righteousness that Jesus has given me by his shed blood on the cross. And with the power of the Holy Spirit to enable me to come to you. Now help me pray. And as you inculcate this understanding, your prayer life will come to life, perhaps for the first time. He says, first of all then, if you abide in me. The second thing he says is this, and my words abide in you. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you. Now what does he mean here when he says that this is also another condition that he attaches to prayer, that his words must abide in you? And I want to bring a point of clarification before we explain this. When Jesus is speaking about his words... He doesn't just mean the recorded speech of Jesus that you discover in the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which in some Bibles is printed with red ink in order to differentiate it from all the black ink, which is the rest of your Bible. And I understand why that's done. It's helpful on one level, but it's actually also incredibly unhelpful because it leads you as a believer to imagine that those words are somehow more important or superior because they came as recorded speech from the mouth of Jesus while he walked this earth. And that's not how we understand Scripture. As Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, he says, All Scripture is God-breathed. So that from Genesis 1 verse 1 through to the final chapter of Revelation, all of it is the words of Jesus. Now with that clarified, we still need to ask, what does he mean then? Why does he say to us, that it's necessary when we come to God in prayer that his words have to abide in you, live in you? What does the reading, studying, and the knowing of the Scripture have to do with a vital living prayer life? Now, I think this is really important to stress because in my experience, personally as well as speaking to, to Christians and understanding something of the walk that you have with the Lord as individuals, we tend to be split on our preferences. There are those who will say, well, look, I love reading the Bible. I'm a studious person. I have that kind of a mind, and I enjoy immersing myself in Scripture, but prayer is a difficulty for me. And there are others here who say, well, I hardly ever read the Bible, but I love to pray. And I keep a note of all my prayer requests, and I'm constantly going to God in prayer. And rarely do you find someone who seems to have brought these two things together in a closeness and intimacy that, that, that Christ is describing here. And it's a tragedy, really, for us to tear them apart. What does he mean when he says that we need to pray with Christ's words abiding in us? And I think the answer, there's a couple of things I want to say here. One is it's so that you know what to pray. You remember how he taught us to pray in, in Matthew 6, the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. And I think what Christ assumes there as you come to God in prayer is that you know what the kingdom looks like. 
You know something of what the will of God is so that you can pray intelligently on the basis of the vision that you have captured of his intentions and purposes on earth and who God is. Knowing God, in other words, through scripture, enables you to pray better prayers. And sometimes, you know, it's surprising then what you discover about the way we ought to pray. One of my favorite examples of this is in Acts chapter 4 when you discover the prayers of the believers there and they, they don't align with our expectations. Here's what's happened. They have, Peter and John have, have been drawn before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council in Jerusalem, and commanded in no uncertain terms to stop preaching in Jesus' name. Stop preaching the gospel. They go back and bring a report to the disciples and they gather and convene a prayer meeting, much as we will be this Wednesday evening. And the disciples raise up a prayer to God in which they pray, Oh, sovereign Lord. And as the prayer unfolds, you discover what they're asking for. And their prayer surprises us because you would imagine that the highest priority in prayer that day would be to pray, Lord, stop the persecution. Turn the hearts and minds of those authorities who are stopping us from preaching the gospel. Stop them from stopping us so that we can preach the gospel freely. But they actually don't pray that at all. They honor God for his sovereignty in raising up rulers, some of whom oppose Jesus. And then this is their request. They say, and now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. In other words... It's fine if they persecute us. Here's our request. Help us to keep preaching. Now, why would they pray such a prayer? And I think the only way you can make sense of it is because they were listening to the words of Jesus. And what does he say? He says, in the world you will have trouble. He says, if they treated me as the master like this, how much more you as the disciples? In other words, he set their expectations, their understanding that the gospel will advance only by force and in the face of persecution and opposition so that when you meet hatred or, or antip- an antagonism to the, 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 the message that we have of Jesus, please don't be surprised. and Don't even pray for it to stop. Pray that you'll continue to speak. And we could draw many other examples of this kind of thing through Scripture, that our prayers are informed when we know the mind and heart and the will of God as it's revealed to us in the Bible. I think that we were prayed much more intelligently about the season that we went through over the last few years in the pandemic. If only we read the scripture more closely. We had clowns on their YouTube channels trying to bind the power of COVID using Gandalf staff. I mean, you can't make this stuff up, can you? And yet, what do we read in the Bible? It says that even pestilence comes from the Lord. God has a sovereign plan in all these things. If we understood that, then we'd pray more intelligently. And it seems to me that when Christ says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, that it's partly wanting to say, then you know what to pray. So be a person immersed in scripture. But there's more to it than that, I think. It also has to do with the reality that scripture will create in you the desire to pray. You will want to pray. What I mean is this. I think all of us, most days of our lives, awake with a crustiness or a coldness towards the Lord, don't we? I remember 
as a child growing up in the 80s, got love for you if you're born in the 80s. Um, I remember on those cold, frosty mornings, mornings that seem to be more and more rare these days, but not just because it's September, but I mean in general, um, those cold, frosty mornings, those sub-zero mornings, you'd often see someone struggling to start their car. You know, the older cars just didn't get going as easily. You'd, you'd turn the key and it would choke and choke and choke and choke. And then you'd flood the engine and then you'd be stuck in the car when you have to push it down a hill and hope that you can jump start the thing some way. And to me, that's a valid picture of, of what the human heart is like when it comes to the things of the Lord. I think there are days when you wake up raring to go. But for me, they are few and far between. Because most likely I've been woken in the night, as happened last night, by my wife and not even by my children <laughs> speaking in her sleep. And then there, there, are all, you know, there are all kinds of things which disturb us and, and, and we feel the anxieties of the day and we feel that we've already, we're already on the back foot because we woke up late. And there are all kinds of things that cool your passion, your love, and your, the flame of your desire for the Lord. The last thing you feel ready to do is to pray because you're cold. How do you stir up the embers of your heart? You know when a fireplace is dying down and all you have is a few pieces of burning charcoal in the bottom of the, of the ash. That thing isn't out. You can get it going, but how? And what Christ is saying here is not only must you abide in me, but my words must abide in you. And it seems to me that what he is commanding here is the power and the necessity of immersing yourself in the word of God through meditating upon God's word so that his word will begin to stoke your heart into fresh fire. And then you can pray. Only then can you pray. One of my favorite examples of this is the story of George Whitfield. George Whitfield was a man who, who quite literally changed the world by the grace and the power of God that was upon him, given his pivotal influence in, in history. And I'm talking about a man who was from the middle of the 1700s. And at the time, you know, after the, the kind of glory days of the 1600s and the, and the Puritan era in which many people were pious and full of love for Jesus in this nation, there was a, a massive turning and a coldness descended upon the nation. All through London there were uh, gin houses on every street. People were given to drunkenness and debauchery and all kinds of mess. And how did God turn it around? Well, he raised up a few preachers, pioneer preachers, who took it upon themselves not just to preach within the little Anglican churches that occupied every village and town across the country, but then also to to fill fields and open spaces like Kennington Park and Trafalgar Square with vast crowds of people as they preached the gospel, anointed in the power of the Spirit. And those men were particularly George Whitfield and John Wesley. And Whitfield was the pioneer of that movement in that he was the first one to be preaching outdoors. And that love for the Lord, the dynamism and power and authority and anointing which ultimately resulted in many, many thousands and thousands of people coming to know Jesus and churches started all across the nation and then also the fire burning across the U.S. and what has been termed the Great Awakening. That really began on the knees of these men. They have their different stories of their encounters with Jesus. But George Whitfield spent 
his university years with much of his time on his knees before God in prayer. Here's how Arnold Dallimore describes his devotions. He says, there he is at five in the morning on his knees with his English Bible, his Greek New Testament, and Matthew Henry's commentary spread out before him. Matthew Henry wrote, who knows, it must be well over a million words commenting on the Bible and many volumes, and he had it open before him. It said he reads a portion in the English, gains a fuller insight into it as he studies words and tenses in the Greek, and then considers Matthew Henry's explanation of it all. And finally, there comes the unique practice that he has developed, that of praying over every line and word of both the English and the Greek till the passage in its essential message has veritably become part of his own soul. I think Christ wanted something like that for all of us. I'm not suggesting that you need your Greek New Testament and Matthew Henry's commentary, but the Word of God, understanding it and turning it back to God in prayer. It's life, it's living witness in your heart, becoming part of your prayer life. It stirs and stokes you so that you want to pray. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, then there's a third statement he says ask whatever you wish now I don't want us to stumble on the whatever you wish part because clearly you and I have desires that we should never bring to God in prayer and that are illegitimate and I don't think that Jesus was offering us here what you describe as a blank check I know we don't use checkbooks these days all of my metaphors are, are dated, whether it's cars of the 80s or checkbooks. But, uh, you know, I'm frozen in time, friends. Just deal with it. But checkbooks, you know, that you could have a, a blank check, which is where your name is written on the line at the top. Someone writes your name on the top and signs the check. But then they leave the amount empty. And you can fill it in as per your need. And it's an act of trust, right? Because you can put whatever number you want in there. And Jesus isn't saying, look, here's a blank check. Ask for whatever you want. I know that there are some preachers in the world who seem to believe that absolute twaddle and live as though that's true as well and basically manipulate people to give money to them because apparently it's testimony to the power of the gospel that they get wealthy. No, it's not. It's a complete denial of the gospel. Let's be clear about that. But what he is saying here, look, read this in context. When you're someone who abides in Christ... And his word abides in you. The whatever you wish part flows out of those realities. In other words, you have sanctified and renewed desires. And your wishes are changed. And you pray in line with the, God, the will of God. Now, I actually am not, I'm less interested in fixating on the whatever you wish aspect. I'm really interested in just this one word, ask, as the third condition of prayer. Yes, your desire is part of that, whatever you wish. But really, I think we don't spend enough time talking about this word, ask. What is our main problem with prayer when you struggle to pray or when your prayer life is bleak or barren? Let me think about that with you for a second. I don't think the problem is that prayer is inherently difficult. All of you can speak. And if you struggle to speak, well, you can think. 
And therefore, the mechanics of prayer are not challenging because prayer is just speaking. So that's the bad reason. Another reason, another thing we can dismiss here is that it's not complicated to pray. Some people say, I don't know how to pray. And remember that Jesus made prayer the most simple, most accessible thing you can ever do. He was intent on expressing to his disciples that prayer doesn't need to be long, it can be short, and it doesn't need to be repetitive and complex, it can be as direct as, as, as the, the, the prayer that he taught us to pray in Matthew 6. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Ten lines. So prayer doesn't need to be complicated, and there's nothing complex about it. And nor is the problem that we don't have time. I know that this is usually our first excuse. I'm too busy. I don't have time to pray. I don't know that that washes particularly. I rather imagine that you stand before Jesus and uh, perhaps he would ask you when we see him, meet him, why didn't you commune with me in prayer? And your answer would be, well, I didn't have time. He said, well, can I just look at your screen time, please, on your phone? Or let me just, just give me a record of how many box sets you worked your way through in your lifetime. Or like, how much time did you spend in the gym or cooking or, or, uh, or at work? You know, you choose to work hard, don't you? You don't have to. It's not like you, you, you couldn't get an easier job that, that pays the bills, at least keeps you alive. But you choose to work hard because the desire that keeps you there. There's motivation, there's ambition. I'm not saying all those things are wrong, friends, but you don't mishear me. But I'm just saying the idea that we don't have enough time is complete nonsense, right? That's not the problem. And besides, Jesus says, you don't need to pray for law. Be direct. Keep it short. The problem is simply that we don't do it. That we do not ask. That's what James says. You do not have because you do not ask. I can't fully comprehend why that is the case, except that I think that prayer is the greatest spiritual battleground of the human heart. The enemy doesn't want you to pray. So let me just offer you a few brief practical tips on this point where he says, ask whatever you wish. Number one, you must resolve. If anything in you echoes and resonates with the longing to be a person who prays, from all I've been saying this morning, hearing the words of Christ, then the first thing I'll say to you, friend, is you must resolve. Nothing in the Christian life just happens passively. I know the Holy Spirit is at work in your life, but you don't just wake up one day and find yourself to be a mighty prayer warrior in the Lord, just accidentally. Anyone who's developed a prayer life has done so because they chose. They resolved. They decided. They exerted the will as empowered by the Holy Spirit to make it a priority that they would become a person who obeys the Lord in this and finds intimacy with him on their knees in prayer. You must resolve. That's the first thing. Don't leave this room without having made a decision. This is going to change. God help me, but this is going to change. Number two, keep it simple. Most commitments in life that require some measure of dedication and discipline fail because we set impossible standards and goals. So maybe you, you, you bought an electric guitar one day because you thought you were going to be Jimi Hendrix. And, you know, you would have been better off just aiming to be Pete Mills, right? And then, and then <laughs> I love you, Pete. I'm joking. He's a far more talented musician than anyone I know, but I'm just, you know. 
Or you thought, you know, I'm going to start running because I want to run the London Marathon next year. And it would have been better if you just aimed for a 5K. You know, we set these impossible goals and then surprise when we stumble or fall short. Thankfully, Christ emphasized, as I've been telling you, he emphasized the, the beauty of directness and simplicity when it comes to God in prayer. He says, don't be like the pagans who heap up empty phrases and think that they'll be heard for their many words. You know, you've probably heard people advocate for that, saying, look, being a prayer warrior means being praying countless hours every day, all through the night, and, and, and all this kind of stuff. And look, I'm not against people having extended times of prayer, but fundamentally, if that becomes an obstacle to you praying, then there's a problem there, isn't there? Jesus says the Father knows what you need before you ask him, so just come before him. Keep it simple. I say then another point here is to build a routine. Routines can be the death of life, can't they, in some respects? It's like, that's why I don't observe Valentine's Day, because I'm like, well, there's nothing, it's artificial, wife. You know, why would I do it? Because it's routine. Every year you have to buy flowers, and I think she understands that. But, uh, <laughs> but routine also can sustain life. So if you, you know, you, you routinely sleep, you routinely eat, because it's there for your survival. You routinely drink coffee because otherwise you would die. So there are certain things you do routinely in your life because they sustain life. And to my mind, that's where prayer belongs. You must resolve to build into your life the what, the where, the when, the how of praying and then commit to it so that it becomes part of your daily habit. Now I want to add along that a fourth tip here, which is that you must respond to the Holy Spirit responsiveness to the Spirit is important. That just as much as I think it's vital that you have discipline and routine, there is also the spontaneity and the beauty of the dance with the Lord when the Spirit is alive within you. That means you will pray at unexpected moments and times and places because the Lord is leading you to pray. One of my favorite exhortations on this came from Martin Lloyd-Jones. He was actually speaking to, to preachers on on this subject, but I think it applies to all of us. And he said, his advice was this. He said, always respond to every impulse to pray. I would make it an absolute law. Always obey such an impulse. Where does it come from? It's the work of the Holy Spirit. So never resist. Never postpone it. Never push it aside because you are busy. Give yourself to it. Yield to it. You might be in the middle of drafting complex email at work or you might be in the middle of disciplining a wayward child or whatever it is that you're up to and you feel the impulse to pray says right there and then give yourself yield to that impulse the holy spirit's at work in you pray pray often paul said you should pray constantly i think he meant something like this that there is that close walk with the Lord whereby not only do you have a disciplined routine you pray each morning or each lunch or whatever it is but there's also a a conversation, a responsiveness that, that you've become part of your habit, your daily practice, that you just burst out to the Lord in prayer constantly. Whether it's in your mind, in your heart, like Nehemiah, when he stood before the king, and it says that he silently just shot up a prayer to the Lord. Or whether you find yourself just withdrawing into secret places constantly, respond to the Spirit. Here's my last tip on this. Pray with others. More, 
it's a fact that most disciplines in life are made easier through community, aren't they? So if you do want to become a runner, best you join with others who run regularly, and that will sustain you there, but also sustain you in your, in your, in your, in your personal d- discipline. If you want to study a subject in any depth, the likelihood is that even if you fill your bookshelf with books on a subject, you are more likely to make progress should you join a class or a learning community and there's that mutual accountability. And it seems to me that corporate prayer is emphasized very powerfully in the Bible and repeatedly, especially in the New Testament, that most of the times you see Christians praying, they're praying together. I want you to have a personal walk with the Lord, but it's not all about you and Jesus. It's about us, the body of Christ. And I would say, look, if you are someone who finds it very difficult to sustain a prayer life, the most simple thing you can do will be to find a friend or friends and say, we are going to meet up every week to pray and to come to church prayer meetings. I would say that's a bare minimum for the Christian's commitment Pray with the gathering. Pray with others. Now, finally, and very briefly, this last statement. And it will be done for you, he says. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. It is my personal conviction that all prayer is answered. And I know that might strike you as an odd statement because clearly we've all asked for things and we haven't received the specific thing that we want. But when I say that all prayer is answered, I think you have to frame it within the understanding that you are God's child and he is your father. That's what he says, isn't it, in verse 16. When he says, ask whatever you ask the father in my name. And I know as a father that fathers pay attention, listen, and weigh the requests are thrown to them and they give an answer even if that answer is different to the one that was expected and I think that's the way in which we understand the Lord answering our prayers that whatever we ask it will be done for us he answers in ways perhaps that you don't expect or anticipate but he does answer because he is attentive because he does love you and I want to draw your mind back to this one verse in Romans 8 as I close that helps us remember the character, the love, the tenderness, and the affection of the Father when you come to him. It's this one in Romans 8.32 where Paul says that he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? I know that sometimes Christians grow weary tired and cynical even in prayer because there is some unfulfilled desire in your heart. A gaping, yawning gap between what you want and the reality that you're living. And that can turn into unbelief and it can turn into something cracked and, and dry and something that, that, that damages your trust and your walk with the Lord and fundamentally you begin to doubt, does he love me? Why should I pray? And the answer that you must keep coming back to, friend, is, well, did he spare his son when he thought about you? He didn't spare his son. So how will he not with him 
graciously give us all things. The Father loves you. You are the apple of his eye. You are the center of his affection and his desire. And therefore, you come to him with that understanding. Don't listen to the doubts and the lies of the enemy who wants to trick you and keep you away from the Father and cause you to imagine that he doesn't love you because he hasn't given you exactly what you've asked for. We come with the awareness that he's given you Christ. And how will he not with him graciously give us all things? So friend, approach the Father on the basis of his love and his tenderness to you. Let's bow our heads and pray now.